The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Lord, as we hear the testimony of the psalmist, we are reminded of the precious truth right there in the middle that the Lord is good and does good. And that's the testimony that all of us can bear through whatever circumstances that uh, your kind providence has directed us, whatever, uh, whatever path of struggle or a direction of just difficulty to, to conform Christ in us. We know that whatever the circumstances, uh, that even as Paul echoes that these things work out for our good, it's because of the testimony that reaches all the way back to, to Psalm 119. It's because you are good and you do good. And so we thank you for that. We thank you that uh, we have that uh, confident assurance and that it, it works, it's proper work, not just in the, the good that it expresses, but in the good that it also works out in terms of conforming us to be better worshipers, to return thanks and acknowledgement back to you and to recognize uh, the, the range of your goodness and how it's expressed. And we do pray that like the psalmist, it would provoke in us an appetite for your word. Um, among the the things that uh, many of us can testify having seen and experienced is is that transformative work of your word. Um, one of the, the kindest things we can do for someone is to direct them to, open up, gift them the scriptures because they're powerful and effective and they accomplish things that no efforts of natural man can do. It's It's the very words of God made clear by the Spirit of God, and so we rejoice in the, the testimony you've provided and ask again that because that's true and because you are worthy of uh, being honored and exalted, obeyed and delighted, and may we again have that kind of appetite, and may it be uh, all the more invigorated as we, as we sing about your truth, as we pray and reflection on it, as we open it in, in the context of teaching and, and seek to make it more plain and are pressed and challenged by its demands and expectations. And Lord, we, we pray for the same for your churches throughout the world. Um, you have obviously one, one body, one church, but uh, many, many local fellowships and uh, people that assemble and gather for these same purposes to exhort, encourage, as necessary, rebuke, and to, to accomplish things that we, we do in local church settings. And so we thank you for your church in Denmark. We thank you that uh, through a quite uh, an extensive history. You've maintained a, a clear and faithful testimony in, in Europe and um, that uh, you have afforded those even who are both indigenous people to Denmark and for those who have come into Denmark to continue to strengthen and to encourage and help the local church bodies. We do pray that they would uh, remain steadfast and faithful and they would have clarity and that they would um, powerfully impact their, their communities, which I can imagine, imagine there's a measure of probably indifference to uh, gospel needs because of just the, the, the casual association with, with the church. Um, Lord, would you, would you help make that clear? And would you press these matters to their necessary conclusion in the hearts of those who would hear gospel truth and who need uh, redemption in Christ and, and strengthen again those who are found faithful? And we do pray for the church in Ukraine. We thank you that um, we, we don't know the nature of how you will direct the affairs of men, but we do know that you 
will accomplish your purposes. We know as we've affirmed your good, and we know that you use a variety of, of means. And so um, we just ask that you would continue, as you have been, to, to be merciful to so many. Um, there are others that uh, they're going to be uh, struggling with appreciating your goodness and your mercy because of loss through this, uh, physical loss, uh, loss of friends, family, and, and any number of other things that have accompanied and that do accompany war. And we ask that you would preserve the testimony of your church, that uh, your people wouldn't become in, embittered or, um, dis, uh, or just lose heart or lose faith, but that they would be um, those who speak clearly through these things and that you would continue to, to give them the grace of perseverance and, and help through this time. And Lord, we do, do pray for this local church body, as has been mentioned. We are mindful there are some who are not able to assemble with us for a variety of providential circumstances, and um, we don't want to be deficient in our um, eagerness to love one another, even by way of uh, distance or lack of opportunity. So help us to, to be thoughtful in prayer and, and intentional and, and care to, to generously, vigorously love one another. We do thank you for those who are here, um, for the opportunity to see one another's face and to, to engage one another. We, we know the value of that. Um, we know the value that others have spoken to so clearly of just being in the presence of one another and, and accomplishing things that are not otherwise um, uh, as satisfactorily done apart. So we thank you for the nature of the church that it gathers. Thank you for singing, for the opportunity to sing truth as we think about uh, Christ's resurrection and the finished work. Thank you for Again, time and prayer, all the things that you've afforded us. May you give help now. Um, we ask through the time of study and preparation that you'd open our eyes and teach us. Lord, would you be pleased to continue to do that? Um, preparation is no excuse or replacement for our need for you to, to teach us even now. So, Lord, give help and uh, find us faithful in this opportunity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So approximately a month or so ago, um, Andre preceded me this, and then I had the joy of, of receiving this myself. I, I received a special invitation in the mail, but not one that was uh, accompanied by an RSVP. Now, this was an invitation that was regrets only, um, as in, if you do not come, you will regret it, as you will be found in contempt of court. So um, I was summoned for jury duty, and I was planning to serve accordingly, and and some of you know that I have very strong thoughts on this. We need good jurors. We need people that, not just the pool of people that couldn't get out of it. No, you, you want good jurors because, Lord, Lord forbid, if you are the accused, you want good peers evaluating your case. So I was uh, joyfully receiving my summons and uh, did due diligence in terms of my schedule and planning, but my group wasn't needed, and so life went on as usual. But... Had the process um, continued, like you, I could have con uh, been considered for any number of hearings. I recognize my circumstances may have restricted me in some regards, but I potentially could have been considered for any number of hearings or court cases or trials. One of those potentials could have been to sit on a grand jury. And I really am fascinated with grand juries. It's not just because like, well, there's, you know, you just got jury duty. I got grand jury. No, it's, it's not just in terms of titles or, or, or rankings or anything like that. 
I think grand juries are fascinating opportunities because they usually hear numerous cases over the course of a few days. So you really get kind of a micro trial which, um, in which only the prosecution is presenting. And the prosecution presents the core of their case, but at, at least in Georgia, I can't speak for other places, the function of the grand jury is really just to determine if there's enough evidence to uh, present an indictment of the accused of the offenses that they've been accused of and thereby allow the case to advance to trial. So if you get a no bill, it's not going to trial. You're not indicted. If you get a second no bill, can't be, uh, you can't be indicted for that anymore. So this is a pretty valuable process and you're weighing through evidence and you're hearing all kinds of interesting things. And so the district attorney's present or one of the assistant district attorneys and often the lead prosecuting officer and they're going to present their case to a group not unlike what we have here and they'll present their case and they'll demonstrate the elements of the crime and the offense and present uh, uh, what they're uh, arguing that the elements of the, the offense have been satisfied so that they can indict the accused. Now, there can be more to these proceedings. They can be much more exhaustive. But the, the fundamental purpose is to determine if there's grounds to indict to advance the accusation to trial. Well, that's where we are now in our study of Jude. That's exactly where we are in their study of Jude. We've advanced in the body of the letter. We've come to the section of verses 8 to 13, which is framed by passages that explicitly speak to the matter of judgment, specifically the sure and righteous judgment of the clandestine offenders who have infiltrated Christ's church. And in this section, framed by passages of judgment, Jude provides an indictment of the accused, as he is now making broad expression of his case for their guilt of having crept into Christ's church to do it harm. So, we've established already the introduction, verses 1 and 2. We came to the heart of the book in verses 3 and 4 with Jude's call to contend for the faith and with this, his rationale as to why such a charge is necessary. And then last week, we examined the first of two expressions of judgment against these persons, establishing a foundation for righteous judgment in verses 5 through 7. And then looking ahead, we come to the next section of verses 14 through 16. And there we will see that Jude will return to the matter of judgment. There he will speak to the surety of their righteous judgment. But here, in the body of the letter, between these two engagements of the judgment of the wicked offenders, what's Jude done? He's again, he's provided that indictment. So judgment, indictment, judgment. He's presenting the grounds for their, their just outcome, which is why we have titled this section that we will begin today, the indictment of the godless invaders. So keep this in mind as we read our passage now. And as we read, I'm going to begin with verse 5 as Jude plainly draws from the preceding section when he speaks to the matters of verses 8 through 13. You always need to have what we've covered in mind, but it's explicitly so in this case. So let's follow along in Jude chapter 1, verses 5 through 13. And he begins, Now I want to remind you, though you know all things, that Jesus, having once saved a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels, who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having indulged in the same ways as these in gross sexual immorality and having gone after strange flesh are exhibited as an example and undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet, and here we begin our passage, yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and blaspheme glorious ones. But Michael, the archangel, when he was disputing with the devil, 
when he disputing with the devil was arguing about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce him pronounce against him a blasphemous judgment, but said, "The Lord rebuke you." But these men blaspheme the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain, and for and for pay they have poured themselves into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, cloud without, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Now, while we're in this section that ranges from verses 8 through 13, uh, we're going to restrict our attention to verses 8 through 10 today. And with this, I want to address three matters to prepare for our engagement. And so we're going we're gonna to walk through it, but I think there's some things that I'd like to, to provide for you by way of preparation. And, and first, I want to acknowledge that while clear as to what is fundamentally being communicated, this is nevertheless a challenging passage in its details. Um, I was sharing with Denise, it's like there's a, a variety of positions on this word, a variety of positions on this sentence, a variety of positions, and it, they all kind of weave together. And so there's a lot of challenges here. So there's a range of reasonable and good conclusions that are based on diligent exposition and thought, conclusions that fundamentally, they get you to the same place, but not necessarily the same path. And I want to be careful, though, because we're students of the Scripture, and this is not bec- and, and and just because there's a variety of positions and a variety of conclusions, and you end up in the same general place, that is not because Jude crafted a, a fascinating puzzle with alternate paths to reach his final destination. No, he he had an intent, right? He had an intent behind every element of the passage, but they're not always easily discerned. So I'm going to provide you my best efforts, and as always. Your charge is to be diligent to hear, to learn, and to carefully evaluate the text for yourself. And it may well be if the Lord's patience continues, and so this time before the day of the Lord continues and our strength holds up, that we may come to Jude again one day with even greater clarity. But for today, we're going to do our work, seek to be faithful, land where Jude would have us, with the beginning of a firm and clear indictment of the clandestine offenders who have and will yet come into Christ's church. Second, as we discussed last week in coming to the body of this letter, we'll also increasingly hear the echoes of Peter's second letter. That's especially true of this portion of the text. So having what we just read in mind and available before you, listen to 2 Peter 2, 10-12. Peter states, Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they blaspheme glorious ones, whereas angels who are greater in strength and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, blaspheming where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Second Peter 2, 10 to 12. You hear that clear echo? When you think about Jude, and I've given you some visual help there in terms of the, the redundancy of terms and phrases there. So it's a very clear echo here to include the employing, again, of many key terms, But what's so plainly different in these two treatments of the matter is the tense of their last statements. So Peter has, blaspheming where they have no knowledge will, in the destruction of those creatures, also be destroyed. So that's a future tense. He's looking. This is going to happen. 
And then how does Jude state it? But these men blaspheming the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. So the present tense there. So Peter expressed this in the future, future tense. They will be destroyed. Jude expresses this in the present tense. They are destroyed. So again, as you hear Peter's echo, remember that it was in view of what he has stated that was coming, and Jude has now affirmed has come. And the third matter I want to address in preparing our engagement with the text will transition us to the text proper, namely the direct tie-in with the preceding section of verses 5 through 7, with the opening of, uh, opening of this one. So we have, again, the tie-in between 5 to 7, now to 8 to 10. And with this, I'm going to propose that the foundations for righteous judgment expressed in verses 5 through 7 were not just to demonstrate uh, precedent for God's dealings with the wicked. It, it does establish that. We have historical precedent. This is how the Lord of glory righteously and justly deals with the wicked. But it's not just historic precedent, but were also themselves demonstrations of the nature of the character of these persons who have crept in unnoticed. So there's precedent, but it's also giving a view to the nature of the character of the offenders. So with that being said, so when Jude spoke of Sodom and Gomorrah, he also gave us a view to these persons defiling the flesh. When Jude spoke of unbelieving Israel, he also gave us a view to these persons rejecting authority. And when Jude spoke of the condemnation of fallen angels, he also gave us a view to the arrogant attempts to exercise blasphemous judgments by these persons. Now, you will plainly notice that Jude makes these connections, but he does this in a different order now uh, than how he presented it in 5 through 7. So we have amid connections, but the connections are not in the same order. And I believe there's a reason for this, namely to maintain a consistent string of connections in the crafting of his ar larger argument here. So the point of connection from last to first and so on here, and then the final point's going to spill itself out to a fuller explanation. So again, once more, we need to, to see verse 8 with a view to verses 5 through 7. So see 5 through 7, see what he said about the, the nature of God's righteous judgment, and see how the character expressed in that doesn't express only the character of God, but also the character of, of the offenders. And we see that with Jude stating here at the very beginning, yet in the same way, thereby drawing our attention back to these matters that he just spoke to, matters of righteous judgment because of wicked and ungodly conduct. A pattern of conduct continued by these persons. So we have a pattern of sexual immorality, a pattern of rejecting authority, and a pattern of arrogant ignorance. And it's a pattern that Jude establishes for these offenders under the umbrella of their dreaming, under their dreaming, which itself also introduces one of the various challenges associated with this text. Namely, what was the nature of these persons dreaming? And how is it associated with these patterns of offenses? Well, my conclusion is that this is a statement intended to speak to their efforts to undermine the integrity of the fixed authority of the scriptures by elevating prophetic visions and dreams. And in saying that, I'm not affirming that they've experienced any true prophetic visions or dreams. They may have had some experience, but it's not an experience from the Lord. And this conclusion for their pursuing an alternate or superior expression of authority also coincides well with Peter's consistent elevating and affirming the true and sole authority of the word of God and his own engagements with these persons. So as you remember, or at least many of you remember, 
Peter laid out clear foundations for the authority of the scriptures before his exposing and rebuking of the false teachers in 2 Peter 2. Remember that foundation, he spoke about the authority and the clarity of the scriptures, the words of the prophets, the testimony of the apostles. Before, in chapter 2 of 2 Peter, he exposed and rebuked the false teachers. And then once more before he exposes and rebukes the mockers in 2 Peter 3, he does the same thing. He establishes the the credibility and the authority of the scriptures, the words of the prophets, the testimony of the apostles. And even return to the matter once more at the conclusion of 2 Peter chapter 3 to close out his final warnings, talking about the scriptures and the consistency of testimony between Peter and Paul in these matters. Also, the only other time this particular term for dreaming is used in the New Testament is when Peter quotes from Joel at Pentecost, a reference that plainly was being used in the context of prophetic visions and dreams. So you see there in Acts 2, 15 to 17, the one other instance where Peter himself uses the same term for dreaming. Finally, there are clear instructions regarding persons who would attempt to express having an authoritative message from God that is outside or beyond the clear teachings of the scriptures, be it dreams, visions, or otherwise. And we see these in Colossians 2 and then in 1 John 4 as well. So Paul stated in Colossians 2, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, going into detail about visions he has seen, being puffed up for nothing by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. And then in 1 John 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard. It is coming, and now it is already in the world. So there's, a, there's an own guard disposition that the believer is to have regarding someone's claim to spiritual insights that have been supernaturally supplied to them. We have God's word. And this is sufficient for the New Testament church. And so the apostles and those who contributed to the New Testament scriptures are telling us, be on guard, and it doesn't matter the nature of their dreaming, and especially in this kind of context. And also with that in view, we need to recognize that God has not and never will contradict his own word. We recognize that, be it by the testimony of the scriptures, the testimony of a prophet, visions or otherwise, Therefore, to find cover for sin by means of purported visions from God is nothing beyond a perverse lie. There are no visions by dreams or otherwise that have come from the Lord that will permit, excuse, or welcome sexual immorality, the rejection of authority, or the exercising of arrogant ignorance. These men purport otherwise and will rush, uh, will, will in turn uh, rush toward a suffering, toward righteous consequences. However, It's of no surprise that these persons who have turned the grace of God into sensuality, as we saw a few verses back, and denied our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ, have now attempted to appropriate divine authority to permit their range of vile conduct, a range of conduct that is precedent for securing severe and righteous judgment as expressed in verses 5 through 7. So under the guise of dreaming, they defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme glorious ones. So let's consider these three categorical offenses, giving our primary attention, like Jude, to the third one. First, they defile the flesh, or we can recognize what does it mean to defile something? Well, to defile something or or, or someone is to make it less than holy or, or not fit for worship. 
However, in such a use as this, it clearly expresses not a, not a passive consequence or matter of struggle in keeping pure or holy, but an overt willful perversion and distortion of something or someone. Here, the object of defilement is the flesh and is thereby expressing a broad range of offenses by and through one's body. The most common and plain expression of these offenses would be sexual offenses. And as we've stated, this was not a, a definitive marker of all persons who have and will creep into Christ's church um, for the purposes of uh, introducing destruction and harm, but an extremely consistent element among such persons. It's almost always, if not truly, the exception that a false teacher will have some form of sexual immorality among their other discovered offenses, be it now or later. And with this, it has a cancer-like spread within the body and its impact and influence, commonly being uh, beginning with soft allowances of unholy conduct, uh, things that are not so much as blushed at at the culture at large and advancing to an indifference toward gross patterns of sin that stand in unambiguous contrast to the testimony and teachings of the scripture. So again, beginning with things that the culture finds, it's not a big deal. And when someone starts introducing that allowance into the church and starts undermining the integrity of holiness, then you need to be on guard, especially under the guise of those who would teach and lead Christ's church. And with this, I think the, the wording of uh, defile the flesh is quite helpful because it provides for us a most natural means of testing the permissibility of our conduct. Namely, does one's choices of conduct promote holiness and promote worship, or are they plainly contradictory to approaching the Lord with clean hands? If not, then we need to examine. Maybe this is a deviation, a less than holy conduct, and certainly something that they would propose and introduce within the church as well. And from defiling the flesh, we move on to their rejection of authority. So rejecting authority appears to have a breadth of application, but mindful that these offenders, what, what's the nature of these offenders? It's not that they've crept into our, our country or crept into our community or our school system, but mindful these offenders have crept into the local church and the strong possibility of there being false teachers based off of the, the parallels between Second Peter and Jude would be the fact that... Um, um, and, and so there's a, they've crept in the church, they're likely false teachers, and it's likely that a first point of application to their rejecting authority would be their scorning the authority of properly qualified leadership within the church. So again, they're trying to creep into the church, likely into leadership, and so likely the most natural point of contention is going to be on that leadership that does seek to be faithful and holy and lead the church well, especially as it would be the properly qualified leadership who would be the most direct in exposing and opposing these imposters. Further, this corresponds well with the fact, again, that these offenders are already identified as those who deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so reasonably, this would carry over to those who serve as under-shepherds of his flock as well the offense being toward our Lord, and then the offense being those who are serving in his immediate presence, as it were. A pattern we see expressed throughout the scriptures, both within Israel and within the church. So Jude's going to go on to talk about the leadership that attempted to undermine Moses' leadership. It's the patterns we see throughout the letters of Paul. It's a consistent pattern that we've observed with those who are the persons who crept in, creep into the church, and seek to do it harm. And just as we'd recognize that submission to um, the God-ordained authority of the government, our social and work structures, and the home, it's not always executed perfectly, but still, the exception 
um, to exercise, uh, the, the expectation is to exercise righteous submission. And again, we've talked about that. We recognize what are the parameters, how far does that go? And it's, it's hard. It's hard to work through. But the baseline expectation is the Lord has called us to submission, government, work, home, family, church. And so we have these who are running contradictory to that. They have no regard for the authority structures that God has put in place, much less within the local church as well. So leadership, and, and with that, we recognize that leadership within the church does not also have a, an inherent authority. It's not that, well, as soon as you can uh, apply the term pastor to somebody, now they have some um, uh, little g, godlike authority, um, but a stewardship. It's a stewardship to do what? To care, lead, and protect the flock. Therefore, those who have appropriated an authority unto themselves by dreams satisfied um, uh, will never be satisfied with the structures that God's provided for the ordering and care of society of homes, much less the church, because they're going to want that authority unto themselves, and they're going to presume and impose an authority upon it themselves, rather than recognizing our authority is rooted in the scriptures, and it's authority of stewardship. Now, they've um, defiled the flesh, rejected authority, and from there, we also see that they've come to the final element, one that Jude gives the most attention to here, and that we will as well. They've blasphemed glorious ones, blasphemed glorious ones. So blasphemy is plainly an important element here. I know in some of the texts, there's a variety of word choices that are used. It's the same root word here, so I think it's a good way to translate it, blaspheme and blaspheming, and et cetera. So blasphemy is plainly an important element here. As Jude references it in some, uh, some form three times in this section, once perverse, so we see in 1.8, blaspheme glorious ones, 1.9, a blasphemous judgment, verse 10, uh, these men blaspheme. And as you well know, What's the nature of blasphemy? Well, it's to speak slanderously, derisively, or in a wicked and untrue manner about someone or something, usually toward God or toward the things of God. And we see that the primary matter of attention as it relates to the treatment of the blasphemy here are glorious ones, or as we've established in our work in 2 Peter, these would be angels. So they're blaspheming angels, a conclusion that's not only supported by um, just a common conclusion by the, the students of Scripture and extra-biblical extra resources, but even I would say the readings of the context where it's used in these two matters, both in Second Peter and here in Jude. So daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they blaspheme glorious ones. You can insert angels there. Whereas angels, who are greater in strength and power, do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. And then Again, obviously, our passage in Jude, and blaspheming glorious ones, but Michael, the archangel, when he was disputing with the devil, himself a fallen angel, have, um, was arguing about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Also, the nature of their title here is significant. So you think about glorious ones, and who would you identify as glorious ones within this creation? Well, of all creatures, it's most reasonable to conclude that the supernatural messengers and agents of God would carry an identification of glory with them, particularly as holy angels are those who identify as ones of light and reflections of God's magnificence. Also, we see in... Um, uh, Psalm 8, Hebrews 2, uh, Hebrews 2, it makes it clear that angels are higher in standing than natural men, albeit this relationship changes when the believer is in their glorified state. We recognize we will judge the angels and whatnot, but at this point in time, we're a little lower than the angels, and the matter still stands to the present. And so they are distinguished. They're distinguished creatures who are reasonably referred to as glorious ones. But herein lies a matter of great difficulty with what uh, we may not fully resolve today. 
We struggled with this in Second Peter. We're going to struggle with it here, and maybe we'll continue struggling with it. But that question of can glorious ones, if the glorious ones are angels, can glorious ones be used of both holy and fallen angels? And if so, why would false converts who have crept into the church blaspheme fallen angels? Well, it's been my personal position that the probability is that both Peter and Jude were speaking blaspheming of fallen angels. However, it is a conclusion that I hold to loosely, and uh, I'm open to, to being challenged and to, to provide more clarity to it. And by challenge, it's a charitable challenge. Let's wrestle through the text. It's a hard thing to work through. But with this being said, um, I'm operating off of the what I would argue is the preponderance of evidence and not the higher standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. So the, the weight of evidence has shifted for me to still seeing them as unholy or fallen angels. That doesn't mean that all doubt's eliminated. It's just the preponderance, the weight of evidence. But I do conclude that these are references to fallen angels on account of the language of the immediate context and the natural motivation of conduct that it would communicate. However, perhaps the best case to the contrary would be the following two factors. So I think there's a good case for it being holy angels. And there's two, two reasons I would recognize right up front. First, the term glorious does not sound befitting to fallen angels who, though perhaps having had a glorious disposition, no longer maintain this identity. Second, angels had a unique role in the mediation of God's law and therefore natural enemies of those who deny, reject, despise the lawgiver. And so we see in Deuteronomy 33 and Acts 7 and Galatians 3 and Hebrews 2, the angels in some form or fashion participated in the mediating, the giving of the law. And so therefore, if someone who despises the Lord and his law, it would be natural that, well, they would hate those who participated in it. And I think both those are really good arguments for the glorious ones being holy angels and why I'm open to a more charitable discussion here. However, I would still argue that even in a fallen condition, even in a fallen condition, angels bear a unique measure of weightiness to them. They're utterly distinct supernatural creatures whose identities, purposes, and ways are not fully understood. Also, the nature of both Peter and Jude's language would appear to be expressing a natural rebuke, but not one befitting for men to deliver. The matter was not the grounds for the rebuke, but the nature of the rebuke and the fitness of the one who was expressing it. A matter quite clearly expressed in the example that Jude goes on to provide for us in verse 9, an example that Peter does not uh, include, and that I think because Jude followed Peter, I think maybe Jude had this in mind, and he's going to provide further clarity here. So Jude now offers uh, clarity to this matter, making all but emphatically clear the nature of these glorious ones. After all, what fallen angel is more ripe for a righteous rebuke than the devil himself? And as to my earlier question regarding why an unregenerate imposter would effectively go after their supernatural counterpart, I would answer that they would naturally do this out of their arrogant ignorance, an action taken so as to attempt to demonstrate some some proud expression of uh, an authoritative power to demand and speak slanderously down to all um, to what all should acknowledge are powerful creatures. So I recognize angels are powerful, and I'm going to demand they do these things, or I'm going to demand certain things of them. What? That's an authoritative guy right there. Really arrogant and really ignorant, though. And at risk of making a point out of uh, anecdotal evidence, I would simply point to the pattern of the contemporary false teachers that are readily available for our personal observation today, they make sport of bullying and demanding things of Satan and his demons. 
with an authority that supersedes that which is clearly not in the scriptures. To the contrary here, actually. That is, what are they doing? They're blaspheming glorious ones. Again, a point that I think is made quite plain by Jude's extraordinary example that he clearly demonstrated was of enough value to include it in his engagement of this subject. And with this, it's noteworthy that not only does he fill out what Peter has also stated by an illustration, but by an illustration of an event which we have no historical account of outside of extra-biblical resources that by the nature of Jude's inclusion of them here communicate that it was a true historic event, which is a really strange place to be, but it's, it's okay. We're going to walk through it. So again, it's an historic event that has no biblical sourcing to it outside of Jude's referencing to it. Rather, it's found in an extra-biblical source that we would not conclude is in any way authoritative outside of this one provided detail. And I'm pressing this matter here because this is not like, we might be like, well, Paul quoted pagans, and he quoted a pagan poet and, and, and would say, he would, we would affirm that this statement was true, that the person happened to say something that was right. This is different because this is a reference to a very unique event that is um, broadly addressed. It's a historic event, but it was broadly addressed in the scriptures, but that lacks the details that was provided by an uninspired source. However, when the Spirit of God inspired Jude to include this one element, we can rightfully conclude that this detail is accurate and true. Now, I may have lost some of you on that, so let me back up here. I hope that's clear. That's my aim. But if not, let me restate it a little bit more plainly. The book of Deuteronomy, all right? The book of Deuteronomy only tells us that God buried Moses, but a a supplemental source, an extra-biblical source outside of the Bible, shares that when Moses was buried, so God buried Moses, another outside source says that when when God buried Moses in, in a place that nobody knows, Michael and Satan disputed over his body. And because Jude includes this detail in his letter, we know it to be a true historic fact. Okay, so hopefully that's a little bit more clear there. So let's walk through this unique illustration for a moment. But before we do, I want to refre- refresh our place in the book because we can start to burrow down. I want to make sure we keep our bearings here. So again, Jude is indicting those who have crept into the church and would seek its harm. In that indictment, he has stated that they have undermined the authority of the scriptures by making their own dreams an authority unto themselves, an authority that leads to sexual perversities, rejection of authorities, and slanderously insulting of angels, itself a reflection of arrogant ignorance. Jude clearly, though, saw value in the further unpacking of this last matter, this um, rebuking of that which they don't understand, and therefore so do we. So that's why we're going to walk through it a little bit more carefully and slowly now. So, what are they doing? They're blaspheming glorious ones. And this, I would argue, is beyond the scope of what even the archangel Michael would do. That's part of the elevated offense. Not even Michael would do this. Eh, that's Michael. What's the big deal? Well, as Jude states in verse 9, but quote, Michael the archangel, when he, disputing with the devil, was arguing about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, to properly appreciate the weight of this illustration, we need to recognize what we know of Michael, the archangel. Well, we have some insight into it. He's, I believe, one of only two angels that are named. You have Michael and Gabriel, and he's the one that receives the clearest identity in terms of title. So Daniel 10 identifies him as one of the chief princes among the angelic realm. 
Daniel 12 further identifies him as the great prince who exercises a measure of supernatural care for the covenant nation Israel. And then Revelation 12 gives us a view to his authoritative position over other holy angels who under his leadership war with Satan and the fallen angels under his authority. So you have a a warring in which Michael and the holy angels prevail, leading to the expulsion of Satan and his angels to the earth. That's who Michael is. And there's rightfully a wow factor here. A prince among angels, a, a, a supernatural guardian in some form or fashion that I can't parse out over the nation of Israel, and one who leads other holy angels to contend with Satan and his angels and puts them down. Again, wow, this, this one, I wouldn't say this guy, this angel, this archangel, is quite something. So Michael, the archangel, is one of the most, if not the most powerful supernatural creatures. And when he disputed with the devil, he did not dare do the very thing that these arrogant fools so flippantly engage in themselves, namely the throwing out blasphemous judgments against glorious ones. So how arrogant does one have to be? How how arrogantly even stupid to cavalierly to do what one of the mightiest supernatural creatures would not do? That's unbelievable. Michael, the archangel, would not dare to do this. And yet they're going to cavalierly blaspheme, slander, and judgment glorious ones. But that's exactly the nature and character of these clandestine offenders. Just as Jude makes so very clear, again, but these men blaspheme the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals by these things, they're destroyed. They clearly do not understand matters that are of spiritual insight and spiritually discerned as they are restricted to carnal and base knowledge. And this is not to imply that we have some secret knowledge ourselves that that can be tapped into. They don't know, but we know, thereby opening the door to a whole range of Gnostic errors on our parts. That's not where we're going after. Rather, this is an understanding and insight into the matters that the Spirit of God makes plain, a matter most plainly understood when we consider the many times we've already observed in our long work in Psalm 119, just to the present, and what were verse 65, 72, somewhere in there, where there's the petition to do what? Not to have some secret knowledge, but Lord, would you help me to see, help me to understand your word, for the Spirit of God teaches us. And so here we see in Psalm 119, again, just to where we've covered the present through verse 72 now, we have verse 12, teach me your statutes. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Verse 26, teach me your statutes. Verse 27, make me understand your precepts. Verse 33, instruct me, O Yahweh, in the way of your statutes. Verse 34, cause me to understand that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Verse 64, teach me your statutes. Verse 66, teach me good discernment and knowledge. And finally, verse 68, teach me your statutes. Now tell me, with that in view, with the the, the prayer and petitions of the Psalm 119 man, where's the arrogance there? It's not. It's utterly absent. They are prayers of a man who knows and loves the Lord and his word and who therefore has profound measures of understanding and is therefore driven to humility and petition to the complete contrary of the ignorant, arrogant, unbelieving persons who have crept in among Christ's church. 
a man who would not dare tread in the steps of these fools who arrogantly and ignorantly exceed the conduct of Michael the archangel, these persons who blaspheme that which they do not understand, but who in a most terrible irony of proud and ignorant arrogance betray what it is that they do know. They don't understand things that are spiritually discerned. So what is it that they do know? Well, they know more, they know more, know more than the, the carnal and instinctual knowledge that you would expect of an animal. An animal that, uh, uh, the knowledge of animals that do what? They're, that drives them to eat. An animal understands that, right? That base knowledge, I have to eat, to procreate, and also to indiscriminately fight what threatens them. That's the, that's the knowledge that these arrogant fools do betray. A knowledge that will not strengthen and help them, but lead to their destruction as it is carnal and a man's fallen condition, it is perverse. Now, with the time remaining, I want to accomplish a few more things. And now that we've covered those three elements of the indictment, I want to accomplish a few more things to to include a brief engagement with some of the details of verse 9 that I bypassed for the flow of our argument. So Jude reference uh, details that fill in some gaps for us regarding Moses' burial. And I'm not putting this into fill or to provide interesting details, but it's an element of the scriptures that I think is helpful to draw our attention to, to appreciate these details. So let's, that, um, that in view, let's look at the, what we do know of this occasion from Deuteronomy 34 verses 1 through 6. So here's, here's our base of our historical inspired information to start with. Deuteronomy 34, 1 to 6. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And Yahweh showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan and Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea and the Negev and the plain and the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. Then then Yahweh said to him, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your seed. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of Yahweh, died there in the land of Moab, according to the command of Yahweh. And he, Yahweh, buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Bet Peor. But no man knows his burial place to this day. So a very somber, weighty moment. This is, this is God's man who's led Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness, got the, into the precipice of the promised land. He's not going to see it, but what a magnificent kindness. He got to see the land. And I would argue, you skip ahead to the gospels and the transfiguration of Christ and Moses is there. So he, he got in, just not, not the route that he anticipated. But the Lord buries him. So what an amazing moment. But we get an interesting, what we might refer to as the extended edition details here of this, uh, this account. And it's found in an extra biblical and historically well-known source especially at the time of Jude. He was able to speak to this with a measure of fluency. The people would have known what he was referring to. Um, It was a source, as best we can determine, came out of the ascension of Moses, which includes an account of the angelic dispute over Moses' body. And in this, it states that Satan was contesting for the body of Moses because, well, Moses killed the Egyptian. And therefore, he's forfeited the rights and privileges that are being afforded to him in this context. And Satan was uh, demanding rights to Moses' body. So again, this is a very elevated context. You have Moses who beheld the Lord face to face and spoke to him as a friend. This is an elevated context, right? And with it, it's further speculated as to what were Satan's intentions? Well, likely to make Moses' body or the burial site a place of idolatrous veneration for Israel. So we've seen this with the bronze serpent. 
something the Lord used, it was valuable, and then it was turned into an idol, thus perverting the man and uh, and Israel's honoring of him. This is what Jude cites here. So he cites from that, that narrative. And here we can have confidence in what was cited and not really any more than that. So we can't speak to the motivation. We can't speak to the context. We can't speak to anything beyond that this account that was passed on in some form or way and codified in some form of writing, that part was true. Now, what is fascinating and truthfully to have been uh, fully expected is that what Michael was recording as having done is exactly what he should have done. So if the account had tweaked it, then we would have known "Mm -mm, it's not true. But he did exactly what he should have done and how he responded in this dispute. And this was that the angel of, um, and he does exactly what we see later in the book of Zechariah. And so we know what he did was right. So again, we see this, uh, not, we see Michael doing what later the Lord himself does. So we fast forward to the book of Zechariah and there we'll see the angel of Yahweh, who we understand to be the pre-incarnate Christ did and what he did when Joshua, don't confuse him with Joshua, the son of Nun. This is Joshua, the high priest that came back to the promised land, was leading the first wave of people back from the, um, from the exile. He was being accused before the Lord by Satan. So again, this is a textual account. We see it here in Zechariah 3, 1 to 2. This is not an extra biblical resource. We know that this leader of Israel and was in some way standing in the place of Israel was being directly accused by Satan in the presence of God. And then we read the following. And then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of Yahweh and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And Yahweh said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, Yahweh, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand delivered from the fire? In Zechariah 3, 1 to 2. Now, once more, do you see the distinction of conduct by Michael versus those who blaspheme holy or um, glorious ones? Do you see the arrogant ignorance of these wicked men to take on a course of conduct that superseded the plain patterns of ones who are so much more mighty and glorious than they are? They superseded what Michael did. They superseded what the angel of Yahweh did. But this does not pose some, um, this does not pose some interesting questions for us here because uh, we've affirmed a clear call to contend for the faith. Or, excuse me, this, this does present some, uh, some clear questions for us here because now we have how arrogant they are, supernatural beings being challenged. And so now we have some questions because, again, we've prayed, we've thought, we've read, and we know there's a clear call to contend for the faith, Right? And so we're contending, we're struggling, we're fighting, and yet we plainly acknowledge that this is a contending that will be an engagement of persons, right? We're those who have crept in among us, persons who have crept into the local church but are not representative of the church body. So now we've just established there's an arrogant ignorance to engage spiritual beings in this way, to engage angels and to rebuke them this way, and yet we've also, we need to work through the fact that but we're called to contend. We're called to contend with men, called to contend with men who have crept into the church and so we see what's the nature of this engagement. Well, they've deceptively crept into the ranks of the body, having some form of verbal testimony and possibly a charade of conduct that would initially appear to be consistent with a righteous life. However, these persons are they're unbelieving, they're carnal, and are set on a disruption, uh, on the disruption, harm, and even destruction of Christ's church. Yet, we've affirmed something else in the larger sweep of the scriptures. Don't contend with angels. Don't blaspheme them. We're contending with those who have crept in among us. Yet we also have con- um, affirmed that our contest is not with what? According to Ephesians 6. 
It's not with flesh and blood, but of a spiritual nature. So persons who are made of flesh and blood do not constitute the primary arena of struggle, per Ephesians 6, and yet Paul himself was constantly engaging with struggles with persons and provided little, if any, engagement with spiritual beings. So we're trying to figure out how to contend. Do you see where we're getting here? He's indicted persons. He said you don't engage the arrogant conduct of these persons by blaspheming holy ones, and yet the totality of the scriptures would say that it's a spiritual battle, but it's a battle with persons. How does this contending even work? Well, we're seeing now an expression of the arrogant, unbelieving pride of those who have crept in among us is that they appear to be willing to aggressively engage in direct spiritual conflict, so but we're told not to. So how do we reconcile this? Namely, this call to contend earnestly for the faith, yet an apparent prohibition to powerfully engage our primary adversary, per First Peter 5, namely the devil or Satan, much less his subordinate forces. But do we not have some measure of spiritual authority through our triumph in Christ? But we're not supposed to contend with them. But we contend with them and not men, and yet our contending is with men. Well, these are important matters to weigh through, aren't they? And I think all of us could, to varying degrees, we could flesh it out. You could say, well, this is how it works. And you'd probably be right. And to that end, I've put a good bit of thought toward it when working through our section here because we have an indictment. So we have a a proposition that they're guilty. Why are they guilty? They've defiled the flesh. They have uh, disregarded authority. And now we've seen they've blasphemed glorious ones. But we've seen that we don't blaspheme glorious ones, and yet we're to contend with them even though it's a spiritual fight. So how do we reconcile that? Well, we return next week. Because now we've worked through the first half of the indictment of these persons. And it isn't an indictment against these persons. It is a spiritual battle, and yet there are sp- and there's spiritual offenses by natural persons. An indictment that speaks to the supplanting of the authority of the scriptures by the prophetic dreams and visions. Dreams and visions that have borne the rotten fruits, again, of defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, and blaspheming glorious ones. And we would do well to remember here the distinction in Peter and Jude's warnings, namely that the offenders have come and they will do much harm, but by God's grace and with his empowering help, we will contend, we'll strive, struggle, fight for the faith that's been once for all handed down to the saints. And we're going to press ourselves toward clarity with just how to do that because they've been indicted. We recognize fallen angels have been indicted. But so what is our place in the local church? There's a sure judgment. There's a clear indictment. Judgment's going to be made more clear. The nature of their offenses are clear. The nature, nature of the spiritual element to them is clear. But we have to figure out how to engage in this fight. We have all the indictments. Now what do we do with them? Well, by God's grace, that'll continue to be made clear as we, we press forward ahead. But for now, I think you have a good idea of the nature of these offenders and how weighty these things are. It's not some cavalier threats, not some cavalier offenses. So we need to pray the Lord to keep us, find us faithful, and engage in the struggle ourselves. All right, let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you that you have indeed delivered this, the faith, this body of truth that's once for all been handed down to the saints. We thank you that the testimony of that truth, of the faith, is clear. And with that, It insulates and protects us from the nature of these offenders who um, source their authority in something outside of the scriptures. They don't have the prerogative of Jude to say that these things are true and say so under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. 
you know, they, they draw from supplemental sources from within, um, likely perverse spiritual influences, dreams, visions, prophetic matters. And then they use that as a covering for sin to excuse their defiling of the flesh, their perversing of their bodies and sexual immorality, just as we already saw the, using the cover of grace for sensuality. And the despising of authority, they, they awaken things in us that are naturally there, but we have to fight. Most of us are going to resist authority because, well, if somebody else is the boss, we can't be. Or, well, a lot of people are bad bosses, and so why should I listen? It's a hard thing to fight within ourselves, much less for it to be fed under the guise of it being acceptable or pleasing to you. And then the nature of them posturing as though they had some supernatural authority, demanding things of spiritual creatures that are superior to them. Lord, we, we recognize such things are not pleasing to you. They're rooted in a false authority. They're dangerous to your church, and they have hurt the church. So, Lord, would you please preserve this church? Would you please preserve it? And no less than, obviously, we would, we would wish that we could bar the doors, but not having the insight of the clarity, we do the best that we can. So, Lord, would you give us the grace to persevere in this call to contend and to figure out what does that look like? How do we do that? Is it simple? Is it complex? Is it purely spiritual? Is it purely physical? Is it a mixture thereof? Lord, give us wisdom. The indictment is clear. Now help us have the grace and the, the will to act in a way that would be pleasing to you in all humility and all faithfulness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.